the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machine to Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, I just want to mention that we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there, or if not, it'd be great if you could leave us a nice review on iTunes. Today, Taylor and I are honored to bring you Michael Hart. Perhaps needs no introduction for our listeners. He's currently professor of literature and romance studies at Duke University, co-author with Antonio Negri of The Labor of Dionysus, a critique of the state form, empire, multitude, war and democracy in the age of empire, Commonwealth, Declaration, and Assembly, among others. Taylor and I are just thrilled to have you today. It's a big honor for us. Obviously, I think our listeners are going to be thrilled to be able to listen to this conversation. So just, you know, thank you from our our little machinic hearts. A, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll have some fanboys and, and fangirls out there. Uh, probably pretty, they were pretty excited when we first announced when you agreed to come on. So I, I really appreciate that. And as a side note, did I... I wasn't able to necessarily find your your sort of full working title at Duke. Hopefully, I was in the ballpark there. Oh yeah, I, I don't actually know if that's if it's any different <laughs> than that, but that, that sounds good. <laughs> All right, it's, it, yeah, as long as uh, you know some people care more about that thing, and it seems like that's that's not a big deal. As I mentioned to you before the show started, we we do like to hear sort of about any personal maybe a memory or an anecdote or or just your understanding of how you sort of got into whether it be the humanities, philosophy, literature, just a little bit of your origin story, as we like to call it. Maybe the most relevant part is that I got into the kind of theory that we're like that you guys are interested in, that I'm interested in, really through political interests and and a certain amount of political activism. But I got okay. So I came to the academic things kind of secondarily. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And this is actually, you know, my interest in meeting Tony Negri when I first did was that I was frustrated at the time, you know, so I was uh, 25-ish, I guess, you know, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd graduated, I was working as an engineer, I was an engineer as an undergraduate, and I, and I was frustrated that my political and activist interests didn't coincide with my scholarly interests. And even among the activist crowd, at least that I was involved in, there was what I perceived then as a kind of anti-intellectualism, like we already know all the answers, you know, right. like there's, there's good and bad. And, it, and I was, so part of those things were frustrating. It was part of them, the interest in meeting Tony Negri was that, well, two things. One is that I felt like the kind of politics that had taken place in Italy in the 70s, what I knew of it at the time, seemed closer to something that I could relate to in the US. I mean, that because I had had more experience with Central American politics at the time, and it and it didn't seem to me to transfer very well to the US. So that was one thing. But the other thing was that reading Tony's work, what I'd read at the time, then it seemed like he 
didn't have a sort of gap between what he thought of as the scholarly work and his, you know, political activist work. It, you know, it felt reading it like like they were sort of one and the same, and that that really attracted me. Through that through that vehicle, you know, I got more interested in the theoretical things. In fact, I read Deleuze first because I read a small book that Tony did with Felix Guattari, and then I thought, oh, that's cool. Let's then I read Antietapus because I thought, you know, this Guattari guy sounded kind of neat. And then, you know, via that to Deleuze. So it was uh, a bit of that trajectory. But that was, you know, whatever, in the 80s. So ancient history, 30 years ago now. Is that Communists Like Us? Is that yes, the book exactly. You're... Yes. Yeah. And I know that uh, the first book that you co-authored with Negri, and I know it's some of its, uh, you know, articles that were repurposed for the volume, yeah. The Labor of Dionysus, Critique of the State Form, you, both of you, I assume, dedicated the the volume to Guattari, who would have just passed away, what, in the previous year, I think. Exactly, yeah. Tony and, and he were quite close for quite a long time. And and through Tony, I was, you know, had the privilege to meet him and, I don't know, go out to movies a few times, go to his house, that sort of thing. That's great. I mean, I, I'm sure people would love to just hear an episode about that. But, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the other thing, you know, you were talking about what was so interesting is, you know, Negri's philosophical work and his scholarly work and his activist work kind of dovetailing together. I mean, some of that reminds me a little bit of perhaps Guattari's interest in alternative versions of psychoanalysis. But the book, I assume that the sort of reason for meeting Negri was the your translation of The Savage Anomaly. And do you have maybe any memories that you want to share? Anything interesting about that or how you how you took that up or how, you know, was that a project well, you did on your own? You know? Yeah, it was sort of the opposite cause and effect though than what you said which was okay i translated the book in order to meet him rather than (laughs) that's awesome that's awesome (laughs) and so i figured you know tony at the time was clandestine in france and and i knew you know just i knew some of the situation it seemed complicated i had a friend who well actually was a a friend of a friend at the time Mm -hmm. brian masumi was in paris and right yeah and, and the friend i knew told me that Brian knew Tony and stuff like that. And so via him, I, yeah, I got in touch and I said, you know, I had translation questions and maybe we could talk about it. And so he mm-hmm. called me, you know, Tony called me and said, well, why don't you come to Paris for a week and we'll talk about the translation stuff. And so I did, that was great. And then I- during the week there, he said, you know, like, this is great. Why don't you move to Paris and we'll talk about philosophy stuff. You know, it's interesting because my for a moment there to, to touch base with you on translation, you know, the first translation of the book project, at least I did was sadly, you know, Guattari had already passed away, The Machine Gun Conscious. And then I did several volumes of Laura Wells' work, who I haven't gotten to visit him in person, but I have, it was nice to be able to start up a correspondence, you know, and meet someone who was, uh, who was still breathing and, and able to talk through these things. I know that that's, that's a, I mean, there, there's no way of comparing translating a work of someone living who can respond and interact with you versus not where you have to fill in a lot of those gaps. And the last volume, Simon Don, he's passed in the 80s, right? So that's something that I, I'm a little bit envious of, right, is, is striking up such a, not just, I assume, a friendship, but this long lasting and prolific collaborative work you've gotten to do with, with Tony. It's a, um, a great gift. Okay, so let's see, in the, what, Savage Anomaly comes out in, what is it, 86? I, I forgot the, so sometime in the maybe, 80s. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit later, because little no, later. I didn't finish, I didn't finish it until about 89 or 90. Because okay, I, okay. you know, yeah, so I went to Paris, and then I just came back 
to the U.S. to defend. You know, I, I'd done my exams and I went to Paris. Right. And then I came back and defended in 1990. And that's about when I'd finished the translation. So it was, I bet Savage Anomaly probably came out in the early 90s. And, and Gotcha. And the other books too, yeah. And then, yeah, and then the Labor of Dionysus, that, that comes out, what, in 93? And so that's that already, your working relationship with him spans... 30 years. And, you know, I, I guess what, what's interesting, too, is, as you mentioned, I assume your your dissertation defense, was this the apprenticeship of philosophy, your, your book on Deleuze? Is that what that became? Yeah, that was the first half of the dissertation. Okay. And right. And then it and just went pretty directly to book form, which was great. I guess I'm curious, what was the second half, if you don't mind? It was about, it was about Italian stuff, you know, sort of, you know, they were very separate halves. And okay. I guess it was a pretty long dissertation now that I think about it in retrospect. <laughs> um, I had kind of a relationship with an editor at the university press. And so I, which was great, you know, like as a privilege, he wanted to look at it when I'd finished the dissertation and then suggested that I divide it in half. And then I never really wanted to do anything with the second half. So gotcha. I just let that go. Yeah. I guess two things, one off the top of my head, you know, your book on Deleuze was one of the first, I know Ronald Bogue maybe holds that in English on Deleuze and there weren't many in French either at the time. Interesting, so, right? Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm sure that the Ronald Bogue book came out first before that. You're right. I mean, there was, it seems strange now, so many years later, that at least my perception at the time, you know, like what's we're going to talk, like 85 ish, there was a lot of interest in the US universities, especially in literature departments in Derrida. A lot of interest in Foucault, too. And both of them were mm -hmm. very present in the US and had right. done, you know, lectures and things. And really, Deleuze had, there was very little, you know, focus on Deleuze, whereas in France at the time, he was, you know, um, he was a huge figure. And Derrida, in fact, wasn't That's interesting. a particularly large figure at the time in, in France. But so, you know, now, of course, in English and in all these other languages, there's so much work on Deleuze, I can't keep up with it. Of course. But at the time, it wasn't, it hadn't functioned that way. And I don't, I don't know if that's because, you know, Deleuze himself was not one who traveled and, and, um, spend time with the U.S. universities the way Foucault and, and Derrida did. But I don't know if it's that or just that maybe the work didn't correspond to what people were were focused on at the time. I don't, I don't really know exactly the reason for it. But it did feel, it felt like there were few of us. And I mentioned Brian Masumi before, who, of yeah. course, was certainly the leading, I don't know, seemed to me the leading person working in these areas. It didn't feel like there were many others. And maybe I just didn't know them, but there wasn't a lot. A part of it is is the chronology of the translations, not just Deleuze perhaps being insular and, and not really wanting to go anywhere, uh, but, you know, what, Anti-Oedipus comes out in 78, but it's really not until the 90s that we get logic of sense and difference of repetition. And before that, you know, there was here and there some of his monographs like Nietzsche and philosophy. It is a kind of out of sync temporality, I think. And uh, that, that partly, you know... Um, accounts for that. But on the other hand, as you said today, I think of it almost like as, as an industry, I've called it Deleuze Inc. before. It's hard to keep up with so much, which, you know, I guess is on the one hand, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, on the other hand, maybe there's a little bit of a of a flooding of the market, so to speak, you know, but that's, um, I, I guess that. Yeah, I would look at it just so that a lot of people find his work useful for what they're doing. I mean, at least that part of it's a great, it's a great thing. And that people have access to it and, you know, not only access to the work itself, but access to all kinds of ways in, because as we all know, it's not easy. 
so having having you know both ways in via his work like you two were saying earlier that the Proust book might be one one means of doing that but then also yeah all kinds of you know commentators and people who have been inspired by him and those are other ways in I guess that people have I did want to connect our discussion of Deleuze to your current work. And uh, I just wanted to remind you, since I guess it has been 30 years, but the <laughs> the last two, it looks like the last two sentences of Jill Deleuze on Apprenticeship and Philosophy is, uh, and I'm just looking at, at, your, at the PDF of your book, by the way, the quote is, in the existing social practices and the effective expressions of popular culture and the networks of labor and cooperation, we should seek to discern the material mechanisms of social aggregation that can constitute adequate, affirmative, joyful relationships and thus powerful subjective assemblages. Filling out the passage from multiplicity to multitude remains for us the central project for a democratic political practice. I was just kind of amazed revisiting this in light of your subsequent work, how that interest of elaborating this concept of multitude and on the other hand, even for example, this cultivating the Spinozistic notion of joy, which we find as early as the labor of Dionysus, you know, your first kind of co-authored work with Negri, you know, so you see these, this trajectory throughout your publishing career. The depressing way of, of rephrasing what you just said is that like 30 years gone by, I haven't got made any advances. Exact same thing. But I suppose, you know, you could also say, you know, certain kind of consistency of interest and uh-huh. and such. I have to admit, it's a little surprising hearing you read it, you know, because I don't remember those sentences. Um, <laughs> right, right. But it's true. You know, what I can imagine, though, is that, you know, like you said, it, in that same period, I was translating Tony's book on Spinoza, in which the right. multi- concept of multitude in Spinoza was really important for him. And, and I was trying, one of the things I was focused on then, you know, just really for my own benefit was trying to think what I understand the political implications of Deleuze's work right and so in some ways in those sentences I can see me trying to me trying to work through that I mean of course you could go one could go to answer that question to the capitalism and schizophrenia books Mm -hmm. you know say because Deleuze and Guattari or together with Guattari Deleuze is much better at expressing the political consequences that they see of the work but at the time then I was, I mean, I, I had read the, the capitalism and schizophrenia books, but in this, in that, you know, in the book you were just mentioning, I was only focusing on the sum of the philosophical monographs earlier yeah. in his, in his career. And so in which he wasn't yeah. making much explicit political deduction, let's say, or I don't know what consequences of his thought. And that's, that was sort of what I was thinking. So, so anyway, those sentences are, you know, were an attempt you know, at the end of a book, one always has to ha- have a, well, I say it's this everyone does. I mean, okay, at the end of the book, I always have to have this moment that says, like, you know, et voila. You're like, what? So, right, right. so what? Or something like that. And so I can recognize those sentences as an attempt to... You gotta wrap a bow around it, right? You gotta, you know... Well, and sort of say what the consequences are. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. what's important about this. And what was important about it for me, obviously, you know, gonna be different for other people, but... But it is important that that one of the earliest books on Deleuze to be published, as you said, in any language, but especially in English, focuses, even if you are focusing on what Bergson, Spinoza, Nietzsche, which, that, I, yeah. which I think is is one of his holy trinities, if you want to like narrow it down, if you have to, 
you know, but I do think that it's nice for you to have articulated the ethical, political stakes in Deleuze's work when a lot of times, as you said, we can get bogged down mainly merely in the ontology and forget to connect the ontological to the ethical as you Again, as I said, you know, you you concisely sum this up in the conclusion, but you do it throughout the book is, you know, and they even say in A Thousand Plateaus, you know, ethics precedes politics, uh, or sorry, no, politics precedes being, I think that's, that's how they phrase it. But, you know, I think that too often Deleuze can be thought of as this apolitical figure who, I mean, you're right to say Guattari helped to bring out the expression of the political consequences of, you know, of theory or of theorizing capitalism. But, you know, I, I whenever I think about Deleuze's apolitical, which I think can sadly get reduced in a certain terms, I, I think of, um, for me, it always stood out, the image of thought chapter in Deleuze's repetition, where there is a kind of politics inherent to critiquing the dogmatic image of thought. Again, with Guattari, it becomes full, uh, it becomes front. Foregrounded, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly, you're right. Coop, I know I I always do this. I I, I dominate a little bit. Yeah, I, I I wanted to let you perhaps get a a word edgewise, just out of curiosity after reading, because I think one of the one of the pieces that you recommended we take a look at for this, just so we can share this with the audience. It was a piece looking at Empire twenty Empire years twenty on. years on, yeah. yeah, Empire twenty years on. So and looking at that, and then I just wanted to get a sense for your work a bit, you know, just more broad sense as well, because I haven't had the chance to delve into it. It was neat kind of to see some resonances with the book on Deleuze popping up. And I think where I noticed that mostly was in this kind of discussion of multiplicity and the one and and unity and kind of moving back and forth between those sort of maybe you might characterize it as a sort of social register. If I thought that was neat. And if you're willing to and would be open to that, you know, we might dig into a little bit under the hood of of the empire 20 years later and kind of draw from your prior work just to see like, what's the, what's the sort of undergirding theory that kind of propelled you to write this. So I was perhaps either going to read this myself or have you read, this is just a little excerpt from, from empire 20 years on that I thought kind of maybe would open up the space for conversation. I'm happy to read it unless you would prefer to do so. Yeah. To theorize multiplicity or even to recognize existing multiplicities is not enough especially if by multiplicity one means simply fracturing and separation. To be politically effective, organization is required. And when dealing with multiplicities, that pressure is even more intense. To respond to our initial question, how can a multiplicity decide and act politically, simply by saying that it needs to organize is not very helpful. The next step then requires a return to the concept of class, but class conceived differently now, in order to explore more fully what a multitude can become and how it can act politically. One obvious objection to the proposal of this second movement from multitude to class is that it unravels all the advantages achieved in the previous movement from a unified political conception based on a single axis of domination that determined by capital to a multiplicity which also engages patriarchy, white supremacy and other axes. Our intention, however, is to develop a conception of class that refers not only to the working class, but is itself a multiplicity, a political formation that makes good on the gains of the multitude. I should contextualize this a little bit is that what Tony and I were trying to recount here is one theoretical move that, that was important for us, especially in the 90s and was part of the, of the project in Empire, which was to think the political subject 
you know, which mm-hmm. which had for many in the revolutionary and progressive West been the working class determined by capital. I mean, and in some ways to the exclusion in many political formations of or subordination, let's say, of feminist struggles and anti-racist struggles, you know, thinking of them somehow as somehow less than or different under the rubric of class. One of the things that was important to us in empire in the 1990s was was to make that political subject open to multiplicity in two respects. And this is what we went by multitude at the time in the 1990s. So in one respect, let's say this is the more restricted multiplicity is recognized that whereas at the time for many, the industrial working class really represented the class as a whole, that introducing multiplicity into into working class here was recognizing all of the different forms of waged and unwaged labor that are, of course, defined by racial and gender hierarchies, but also different forms of different forms of work and even the unemployed. So recognizing class as multiplicity was one, but then a much larger multiplicity in the recognizing the subject of revolution and as a feminist subject and as an anti-racist subject. And in addition to those struggling against capital or that often intersecting with, of course, or overlapping with or interwoven with. So in any, any case, all, all that's still prelude, which is that that was important for us. The movement from class to multitude was not an abandonment of the class or mm-hmm. or even abandonment of the working class. Rather, right. thinking of it as a in a larger framework. I mean, in some ways, I'm giving now, you know, our terminology for a shared project you know, among a really wide, wide range of people, it seems to me, from the 1990s onward. So that notion of multiplicity seems super important to us and and still does. But, but as and now now we get back to the paragraph that you that you just suggested, which is that to say multiplicity, or even to think multiplicity is not sufficient politically doesn't guarantee the effectiveness, you know? And so the way we had thought of it, I would say when we were writing Empire was, well, yes, of course, you know, but you have to organize, you know, multitude isn't just a, a kind of disparate multiplicity. Multitude is an, is an organized multiplicity. And, and that's what political organizations required to, to do that. And so in some ways here, we're, we're, you know, feeling like that. I think that that, that, aspect of our notion of multitude and and even of political multiplicity was very poorly understood or often easily misunderstood without you know if you and so this seemed to us a way of or a need to i mean i i do think it for us it was just not that the changing idea or even changing social circumstances but a more effective way of expressing it yes so so here we're saying that, you know, whereas whereas in the 1990s, it felt to us important conceptually and politically to move from class to multitude in order to affect that multiplicity. Now, we need to recognize the movement, which we're calling here from multiplicity to class, but of course, not just like a pendulum swinging back to the first one, but right. rather the notion of class as, as a organizational project. You know, right. an organizational project that isn't only directed towards capital, because this is at least we try to argue that and point to examples where people think class, you know, as, uh, you know, this was a 70s project within certain feminist authors of, you know, sex class or thinking about race in terms of 
class two. In any case, all we really mean is an organizational project. And then, of course, we're also charmed by the, the I don't know, inside Mark's joke, you know, where the, this CMC? can now be CMC prime you yeah. know, rather than MCM prime. You know, so class prime as the... And so, but this designation of class prime for us, you know, the, what do you call it? The point of arrival of this movement. Right. Class prime is, has to be a notion of a multiplicity organized as effective political subject. And hence, you know, class, you know, in some ways, class functions here, some ways, the way that the concept of party does. I mean, because in the same way, party is often assumed to mean centralized decision-making and, and centralized organizational structure, but really party means politically effective organization. And right. so if party means that, then I'm all for it. If party, on the other hand, means either a vanguard organization or even a centralized decision-making structure, then... But I think it's helpful to broaden, at least this is rhetorical or conceptual effort here, to broaden our conceptions of what class and party and to make to make new use of the terms. That's what yeah. we do. That's the effort. That's way too long an explanation for that paragraph. No. You got to the heart of one of the one of the sections you wanted to focus on was this fifth section. And I think, you know, your way of articulating intersectionality as inherent to this notion of class prime was really helpful for me to understand specifically. And I, I may need to look at the text, how you exactly articulate it, but specifically this this notion that you know, as you said, sex class, race class, et cetera, aren't necessarily external qualifiers that are just added on, but in here and are articulated kind of internally, it's kind of like an inclusive disjunction, so to speak, rather than an exclusive disjunction. That's how at least I was thinking of it in terms of, you know, kind of Deleuze and Guattari, you know, speak. But the point being that those relations aren't sort of externally welded on. And, and so you just kind of agglutinate all these different identities and struggles, but that the struggles themselves are, they have to sort of merge together precisely because things like capitalism, patriarchy are co-constitutive. That way of articulating it, I think, because I, I was reading some of this to, to my wife, just as an aside, mm -hmm. Because she has a shirt, she's wearing a shirt today that says everyone should be feminist or I think something like this. And so when I, I read your example that you gave, I think it's the second one uh, from Iris Young, sort of uh, exhorting male socialists to realize that, you know, feminism and feminist struggles, struggles against patriarchy isn't necessarily something external to the struggle against capitalism. That to be, there's no way that that can be a secondary consideration just added on. It has to be a part of the sort of struggle, you know, whether it be yeah. revolutionary struggle or et cetera. It has to be that way of articulating and thinking about whether it be multitude or this move from multitude to class prime really struck me as as very um concise and cogent. I appreciated that. And and she she did too. She was like, she was like, fuck yes, I I, I love this guy. So, you know, that's why I think that this paragraph kind of opens us on to this discussion of this way of, of sort of thinking of struggles as what was it that uh, Rosa Luxemburg said, the quote that you repeat, it's like, it has to be a chapter. We have to think of these uh, quote unquote other struggles as a chapter in our own history, something like this, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. I just wanted to say something that's obvious that you're, that you're already saying, which is that, 
you know, here what Tony and I are trying to express is something not at all original. It, it's something that's for, I would call it, you know, the centerpiece even of the current political theoretical agenda. And so different people are approaching it from different angles and sometimes with different terminology, but, but that's, that's good. And I don't mean when I say not original, I, I mean that in a good way, actually. I, I think it's part of a common project. And that's what, like you say, I, I hope it's it's recognizable. And then people say, well, yeah, of course, that's what I'm already doing. Like, awesome. That's exactly the way it should be. Yeah, and it's it's good to be able to articulate. I mean, obviously, intersectionality is, as you, that's not necessarily original to you, but your way of articulating how that should be thought of rather than it being thought of merely as inclusion in this kind of passive sense. There's this active notion that's embodied in sort of, um, you know, thinking of these struggles as, if not one and the same, then at least a part of the same sort of practice or mindset. I would even say it, right, I think that's right. And I, I would even add that I think part of the political work is the process of articulating the struggles together, you know, so yeah. that it doesn't mean that they become the same struggle. It's rather the both the forms of solidarity, the recognition, like you said, of of it being part of one's own struggle. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that that politically, it's part of what political organization is about is creating these processes of articulation. Yeah, that don't reduce something to a unity that don't subordinate one struggle to another, but instead, create I mean, you could say, okay, so since we're in in friendly environment, you could say that it's a process of constructing assemblages. I yeah. mean, if you could think of assemblage in that way, which of course, you know, assemblages are never a unified homogeneous whole, but they are relatively consistent planes of of articulation. I'd say something like that. They could always be the deconstructed. I was going to mm -hmm. Yeah, deconstituted. I was trying to remember there was some <laughs> there was some uh, Spinoza letter about the blood, you know, where he says that the okay, I'm not exactly remembering it, but there's some some That's term okay. about the disarticulation, mm -hmm. um, which which worked better in that regard. But anyway, that's what I mean. They're they're always temporary, you know. They're always constructions, these kinds of articulations or assemblages, but not for that reason any less powerful. In uh, the conclusion to your book on Deleuze, you, you talk about the difference between assemblages of power, right? A, a jansman, the puissance mm -hmm. versus these deployments of power, which are these, uh, which is obviously the the negative sort of macro term, the, you know, dispositif de, what, de, de pouvoir? De pouvoir. Uh -huh. Yeah, so this difference in, this difference in what, uh, in Spinoza, it's potentia and potestas, right? Something like this, this difference between yeah. sort of the imminent, you know, relationality of of assemblages that and what they are capable of, what they are, what they can affect and be affected by, et cetera, versus this notion of power as as you mentioned earlier with the party structure as centralized, hierarchized, et cetera, right? Tree structure versus rhizome. You know, again, like since we're doing it, uh, but Coop, I know that uh, a minute ago you did have something to say. I, I I'm sorry to. Hopefully, you you kept your your point. If not, we can. Just briefly, in the context of, I guess, reading Anti-Oedipus, something that has come to my attention or something that I've been, I think, it's been a heavy focus for me would be, and I think it dovetails into this conversation about how, you know, these different forms of oppression intersect and so forth. 
and this is kind of skipping ahead a bit too into the because in the piece empire 20 years on you're discussing sort of the common and the and extractive processes and how that sort of is beginning to seep into the digital realm and biometric data etc but i think one of the fundamental you know social reproduction is one of the earliest things that, that sort of captured relative to the reproductive capacity of women this theft and this sort of but almost like a chatteling of of the reproductive capacity of women sort of being this initial extractive even enclosing process one might yeah. even say right it's back to the forefront with uh, the leaked decision, so to speak, that's, I guess, impending whenever they decide to to release it of this overturning of Roe v. Wade. So that's like front and center back in, at least in American politics, but that's not by any means restricted to to the shores of this nation. I'm not sure if you're familiar. We have spoken to Thomas Nail, who's kind of in the new materialist realm, and we looked at his book, Marks in Motion, and this is one of the biggest arguments that he made in the book was that this enclosure of the commons, this extractive process is literally, it's just, it is straight up theft. And that straight up theft is what allows, you know, capital to really persist. And to me, I, you know, I just connect that to the initially one of the fundamental commons that's captured would be the reproductive capacity of, of women or, and obviously we can see this process, you know, it's an ongoing process, not something that ever really stops. Like I said, with regard to the digital commons, biometric data, and the way that social media tries to extract some type of value from just, I don't know, what would you call it? Just merely social relations? Well, capturing our attention, attention, yeah, uh, the dopamine drip, whatever it is, using our own even capital, really almost like fracking, you know, how fracking is really just trying to suck out the the petroleum that's in those little cracks. This is, to me, a good metaphor for what capitalism is trying to do in this way. It's kind of like you bring up Airbnb and Uber as well, and I think those even play into this, right? Because it's like if my car is sitting idle out in my garage, that's wasted opportunity cost or there's wa- there's a certain waste of resources. Housing, all of that is the same, but then we begin to see how insidious this becomes. And I think as particularly in the form of Airbnb, the unintended consequences of Airbnb were really devastating to the housing market. But we'll see how all this plays out in the new, the new higher interest rate environment. So yeah, I, I suppose Michael, you know, respond to to any of that because because Coop, that was uh, that was great. You know, you did bring together a lot of things. So sorry, Michael, go ahead. Well, I was just going to do a, a bibliographical <laughs> note for, for listeners. I mean, that the part about the about the capture of women's reproductive powers as a kind of privatization of the common is certainly a centerpiece of Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch, which many of the listeners probably already know, but if they don't, you know, that's a great place to go for that. And that, I mean, Sylvia Federici represents sort of one stream of this thinking about the common or the commons, you know, depending on who's saying it, and and the the way that capital is defined by or characterized by a capture, rather than thinking about, or in addition, or in collaboration with thinking about capital as the extraction of surplus value, and, you know, hence as the exploitation of labor, thinking about capital in terms of the capture of the common, I think that a lot of I would say contemporary Marxism could be thought of within that the play between those two those two notions of capitalist of the functioning of capital. 
something like that. So anyway, all I did that was just a footnote rather than yeah, rather than rather than adding anything to what you were saying. Yeah, I guess what, I didn't really give you much of a question, but I don't I don't I thought <laughs> that might just open up perhaps open up space for some of the extra some of that discussion of the common. I know that obviously the the discussion of Uber, Airbnb, like this sort of the rise of the rentier economy is a is a sort of newer development that we've been looking at. And it's I don't know, I'm kind of curious to see, you know, how that will develop because it feels like Uber, like all these kind of gig economies that are gonna those companies are gonna start to fold because of the new interest rate environment. Like what's gonna happen to labor? You know, there seems to be, you know, a sort of crisis building depending on how that shakes out over the next few years. It is interesting, though, that, you know, as you already pointed out, an empire, but as Marx also pointed out, capitalism and empire seem to thrive off of these these crises, true, right? right? Rather than necessarily see them as, as an obstacle. Just piggybacking off of what Coop said. One of the things that I really appreciated from empire and that we see in Guattari's thought, too, from the 70s, one of the texts we talked about a few months back was called Nine Theses of the Left Opposition. And he's articulating this notion that socialist struggles or the struggles of the working class, if they are merely hyper-focused on national borders, they're doomed to fail. And this is one of the things that keeps coming back, not just in the, the 20 years on essay, but in Empire itself. You Obviously, there are these there are, so to speak, dangers inherent in globalization, but you and Tony or you and Negri are, are sort of always hitting this point that it also gives us tools to fight back against. And so one of the things that I appreciated was this, this notion of the proletarian movement, the revolutionary class, whatever you want to call it, these struggles have to be thought of as intra supranational as, you know, taking place around the globe. And if they are, if they remain insular, even if that seems like prioritizing local, there's a there's sort of an inherent fault to to not having. So I guess I'm rearticulating it is intersectionality has to also be thought of as as kind of a global phenomenon, right? Right, right. I think you know uh, it, it, at least my recollection of Guattari language about these things is the linking transversal struggles, which I'm thinking mm -hmm. of as another way of thinking the trans the a certain kind of intersectional notion of mm -hmm. struggles. It's the transversality with the international framework, which was always part of Quattri's vision or mandate. I think also recognizing the, even when struggles are very local and maybe even, you know, some might say that they always are, you know, the struggles themselves are always local, recognizing their, and even acting on their, their global context their solidarity with or even potential actual links with struggles elsewhere. Yeah, it seems super useful. And also, you know, when you just think about things going on, these it's easy to recognize that in the most interesting and, and inspiring contemporary movements. You know, like one of the things I'm most excited about in the last many years is the feminist movement that I originating in Argentina, Neo Namenos, and you know, really are originating against against um, femicide and sexual violence, but really incorporating all kinds of labor struggles and ecological struggles and indigenous struggles, et cetera. But that, that it's, you know, not only linked in other Latin American countries, but also in Italy and Spain and in and Poland and, you know, the kind of international articulations that 
go on. So, I mean, Neo Nomenos in that sense is a, is a great example of those sort of those two axes, you know, that you were talking about the one, which is that, you know, they're very insistent that it not be closed as a feminist struggle that's isolated from other struggles, you know, right. that it's also, like I said, yeah, labor struggle and indigenous struggle, et cetera. But then, so it's transversal in that sense, say within Argentina, but then, but then immediately linked to reproductive struggles in Poland and in Spain and et cetera. So that that's, you know, that's what's going on. So in some ways, you know, I think this is also true about all the work I've done with Tony. You know, I, when I say this, I, the thought I'm just having, I know that, that Tony hates it when I say it this way, but it's that <laughs> I feel like once again, in this regard, that there's, um, that there's nothing really original about our work. You know, like what we're really doing is we're thinking with, the movements yeah. that are already happening. And so, so it's not like, you know, if someone were to say, well, you know, you're talking about multiplicity, you're just talking about intersectionality and a million people have done that. And, and that's, you know, develops through black feminist thought in the U S but all, all these things. Absolutely true. We're completely unoriginal in that, you know, like, and then, or that these movements are doing that and you're just in a way expressing the aspirations and some ways, the accomplishments of these movements. Absolutely. Like, that's what I, I feel like I should start some some movement to take pride in unoriginality. The movements are doing this, describing it this way in terms of transversality or articulation, you know, which I like better in some ways, but is yeah. um is really just a way of trying to trying to think with the yeah, the accomplishments and problems facing the the movements themselves. And I think that's what Tony and I've done for quite a long time. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what and that he was already doing before I was um well, maybe before I was born. I was saying before I was politically <laughs> conscious, at least. But in a sense, uh, thinking in terms of whether it be Marx and the general intellect, or whether it be Spinoza in terms of the emendation of the intellect as sort of contributing to the to whether it be well, I, I'm not sure the translation whether it be Commonwealth or the common good, something like this. I mean, so unoriginality doesn't necessarily have to be a fault. There is a certain mm-hmm. sense in which articulating and elaborating adequate ideas boost everyone's power, right? So I guess my one of the things that I think is interesting, perhaps, you know, the way that the 20-year re- retrospective essay uh, ends, and maybe perhaps is again, you know, uh, not to fault your unoriginality, so to speak, as you called it, is this notion that, and you start the essay this way, but this notion that it seems like empire has is fading away but in fact, it's like, as you say at the end, it's ta- it's taken this invisibility invis- potion, and we have to sort of conjure up means of of countering that that sort of cloak of invis- invisibility that it's been able to to put on, and and be able to to find these new and more uh, you know articulated. I'm use your word um, theories of of struggle against empire. So I think that that's what was interesting to me too is this notion that it's just better able to hide itself. And part of the way that it's better able to hide itself is you know these these movements that we've seen in the past decade, both here in America and Eastern Europe, et cetera. These rise of reactionary. You know, you mentioned Brexit, of course, too. You can you can add that in there. These these reactionary movements that seem to be sort of you know on the face of it, they're so to speak anti-globalist. But you you point out it's it's 
perhaps not so much anti-globalist as wanting to sort of rearrange themselves in a in, a, in an upper echelon of the hierarchies in the global order. I thought that was a, a really interesting way of of sort of putting it to show that these anti-globalist movements are perhaps more bemoaning or are showing this nostalgia for a, a lost hierarchical position in the global order. Right. And a little bit when you express it like that, it's a little bit like the injured masculinity or, or mm-hmm. whiteness as resentment of its loss of position of privilege, reading that in a, in a kind of global scale, you know, that maybe a certain, a certain fiction of Britain let's say, that could function as that kind of expression of resentment and and loss. Right, that's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I had been struck by thinking 20 years back to the times when when Empire came out, really, not when we were writing it, because that was in the midst of those uh, movements around globalization or that made globalization explicit, you know, thinking right. about Seattle WTO and, mm-hmm. and Genoa G8 meetings and the various things around them. One of the things that I think been really impressed by them was the pedagogical nature of those movements you know the the ways that they were exploring the way the global power structure works yeah you know so that by revealing you know remember i remember that what i was thinking at the time was you know that if the movements thought that the u.s was really in control of global order and global things they should be every weekend at the Pentagon or at the White House or whatever, <laughs> you know, the thing. But instead they were, you know, experimenting with different and new power centers, let's say, you know, like yeah. like the WTO or the G8 or free trade in the Americas or, you know, there right. were every series. So we what was derided at the time and, you know, with plenty of truth to it is the kind of summit hopping, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, actives would go to each of these summits. It was I think it had a real intellectual process of clarification and that's something that seems to me we could use again that kind of um the contemporary movements at least i don't see it in the same way of experimenting with an understanding of the global system of power the capitalist system the systems of white supremacy the patriarchal systems which aren't they aren't unrelated to each other and so working out those connections seems to me it's one of the ways in which I recognize the superiority of those movements with regard to our present movements. You know, there, there are other ways in which the present movements are clearly superior to those. It's just one of the advantages they had was I think that intellectual endeavor. Off the top of my head, before we started, I I was talking to Cooper about one of the, one of the merits of your collaboration with Antonio Negri. One of the things that Deleuze and Guattari lament say after Anti-Oedipus was published, even though it had, I believe it not only in France, but in Italy, it had it had some success in at least super yeah. in, influencing. Yeah. One of the things they regret, though, is the fact that they perhaps could have written in a way that would have been more legible. Let's just say it hmm. is dense and theoretically difficult in certain ways, even though that that was for them their way of getting the machines the analytic machine and the revolutionary machine, et cetera, to sort of coalesce. But one of the things I was praising about your work with Antonio is the fact that for me, at least, it feels like even though it has theoretical implications and theoretical concepts, et cetera, it seems like it's written for someone who doesn't have a background, say, in the history of philosophy, or it's written in a way that's very accessible, which 
again, perhaps is a nicer way of saying unoriginal or, or something, but I, I, I feel like I feel like there's a way in which compared to a text like Anti-Oedipus or even like quote unquote original texts like A Thousand Plateaus, there's a certain sense in which you can dive into your collaborations with Antonio without the need for you know, hunting down bibliographical citations or doing, you know, a deep dive into Spinoza, et cetera, you're able to, I guess that's part of the problem, perhaps with the Deleuzian philosophy as concept creation is, is if that's first and foremost, there is a sense in which there is a lot of legwork and mental gymnastics to be done to be able to start to have a fluency in the kind of monster slang that they elaborate. So in a certain sense, I think that there is a merit for being able stylistically to have, to reach a much wider audience than, you know, what I would think of lovingly myself as like a theory nerd or, you know, um, a Francophile, whatever. No, it's kind of you to say that. I, I doubt it's as true as you make it sound about the accessibility part but the i mean i think that these collaborations i mean i think this is true of Deleuze and Guattari even though you know i don't i didn't know them you know together or anything but i think the way these collaborations often work is really and this is a great thing about them is they're focused on each other it's partly writing for each other rather yeah. than writing for and that and so there is a kind of tendency towards you know like the other person understands it and so it's sort of enough. The two of us understand it and we understand each other. I was just wondering how much Dills and Guattari is sort of that way that they, you know, thinking about each other more than about like a general readership, you know, yeah. like trying to, yeah. trying to talk to each other and, and write for each other. And I've often thought about it that way when, with me and Tony is the things that we write together. We don't, it's not like I write in my voice and he writes in his voice. It's sort of like, it's more right. like I sort of write in what I'm, you know, imagining him to be saying, and I, he's sort of writing, and he's what he's imagining me to be saying, and it turns out it's something different than either one of us. You know, so, but but it's but it's all mixed up in a in a not exactly an internal dialogue, but but there is something there is something about that, and I can definitely see that sort of thing with you know with Deleuze and Guattari, where they get excited about each other and and what each other's saying, and you know, and working with it. Just one little anecdote to go back with something you were Please. saying about the accessibility yeah. thing, which is, I mean, and this is not even my anecdote. I think it's Bifo, Franco Berardi, who told me this, mm -hmm. which was that as a kind of, I mean, I don't know if it's exactly true either, but he said that in 1968 in Italy, you know, the kids who were trying to be revolutionaries had Lenin's state and revolution in their pocket. And right. in 1977 in Bologna, they had anti-Oedipus in their pocket, <laughs> you know, as that was the, like the, um, the equivalent of what would have been Lenin from a decade earlier, you know, to demonstrate that they're, you know, I suppose even with what we're saying right now, maybe, maybe they weren't even understanding what it was, but they knew that that was the, that was what it, I don't know, the direction or what it meant to be trying to be revolutionary today. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the, if we went in a similar way, I don't know what, can you guys imagine what would be the book that, yeah, that people I, would. Hmm. If you had written a similar style well, or if, type of, if, if there's a revolutionary, let's say if, if, the revolutionary is a genre per se. Like, what would be the what would be <laughs> the, the like boom of, what would represent our sort of capital or or what have you? I don't yeah. know that there is necessarily revolutionary. Yeah. No, I have some candidates in mind, but I don't. But I don't think there isn't a single. I mean, I think um, what is it? Fisher's capitalist realism is kind of. I mean, that's kind of a weak choice. Kind but of I a think pressing one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. 
when it's I, when a I was, great book and he's great and everything, but it's not like the uh, right. When I was in grad school in about a decade ago, you know, I mean, Empire was still a pretty well discussed book, and when you saw it included in all kinds of classes from post-colonial to digital theories. It definitely was like Foucault and Derrida and these others. I was in the comparative literature program, but your work with Negri was definitely one that grad students were assumed to have been at least familiar with, if not well-read in. I'll try to keep from from giving more <laughs> praise. I, I, I know that that's a but I guess I, I like that you reflected on the, whether it be, you know, the assemblage that you form with with Antonio, because, you know, Deleuze and Guattari have reflected on this a lot. And Cooper and I have had the chance to, not to self-aggrandize, but kind <laughs> of think about the fact that, you know, we do think about this where the podcast is, if he and I are reading things that interest us and we are sort of able to work through and elaborate our understanding and be able to bounce off each other in ways that we feel are productive and stimulating, then we assume that to a certain extent that'll translate for a listener who might be sucked in and influenced and maybe motivated, et cetera, or at the very least entertained, but hopefully more than that. And mm-hmm. I think that I mean, I think that's part of what you were saying where, you know, just uh, one last thing about the unoriginality thing where you're, you are boosting these, not just other voices because you, you're very generous with your citations and elaborations of where certain concepts come from. But, you know, there's this, a phrase that I've thrown around because it's stuck in my head from a professor, uh, this notion of a, of joining a, a chorus of scholarly voices. There's a way in which even that can have a boosting effect and an effect of stimulating thought and perhaps changing hearts and minds, if you want to put it that way. But there is something that that I think is why one writes, why one, you know, participates in conferences and academia, et cetera, right? Why even do a theory podcast is to sort of be able to create this velocity of ideas and thinking that can change hands and and perhaps be reused or repurposed or or even Etc. I have a um, Spinoza version of saying the same thing okay. about the podcast and about the two of you, which is that, you know, first of all, you know, you need Spinoza definitions for these things, you know, that so first of all, joy mm-hmm. for Spinoza really is the increase of our power to think and act. So we experience joy when and love, which is dependent on joy, love is joy with the recognition of an external cause. So you're you know, you increase your power to think and act, and you recognize that there is an external cause of that. So intellectual love, in some sense, is that you, well, here's the way I understand it, in a like, really basic way, which is that, you know, most of the times, I would say even with most people, you know, that you meet and you talk to, I actually feel more stupid. You know, like, I thought <laughs> I understood something, we start talking, uh, it falls apart, I can't understand it. But there's some people with whom... When we start talking together, it really does increase my power to, th- to think. And so, first of all, Spinoza would say, hold on to those people. That fits within this category of love for him because it's, it is, it's the increase of your, your power to think with the recognition of an external cause. And so, in some ways, what the process of, of adequation, you know, like now I'm even thinking about that Deleuze book that I had written about since you mentioned it earlier about, mm-hmm. about this, which is that it might be, you know, random that you encounter somebody like that. 
But what this process of adequation that Deleuze was so interested in Spinoza is that you envelop the cause, like you make it, you construct a relationship so that it's not random. That's what I meant by like, hold on to that person. It's sort of, and so, so then the increase of your power to think is, is just part of your, you know, the relationship together. Anyway, it'd be nice, nice to think of a podcast that way too. You know, it's just a, a way that, that creating joyful encounters, you know, meaning increasing together, increasing your power to think. You could obviously try to entice Tony to, to start one with you. I know it's never too late, right? Never too late to, to start one, but, uh, just We'd have to, all kinds of language problems. Exactly. It might be for an Italian audience, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not sure how, how good his English is, but, you know, I... Not, I, not, <laughs> not, no. I guess that, that's an interesting question then with your collaboration. Is it mostly done in Italian and then you're responsible for the English? The traditional way we done it yeah i guess it's almost it's always this way which is that he writes in italian i write in english and then eventually i'm responsible at the end for getting everything in english so you've been um, a translator for much more than just the the savage anomaly i guess then i guess so although you know the translation process was a, a lot of it is when you know the way it worked actually with an empire which was it was more i don't know home artisanal at the time he was writing on on his typewriter and i was using a <laughs> computer but but right. we would exchange we would exchange printed copies and so he would in order to revise what i wrote he would cut with scissors and then <laughs> type in type in other paragraphs and then paste them to a piece of paper and stuff like that's that. that's awesome but wow you know i would take advantage of the of the translation to revise things and sometimes i've felt i have a privilege because i can i have more control over it if i'm doing that part i miss that it's much more convenient, obviously, doing these things on the computers now and, and stuff. Just thinking of it now, talking to you that those um, pasted together sheets where there's you know, a paragraph in English, a paragraph in Italian and things glued together and stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice. Um, That'd be a nice little artifact to have. Like, I feel like there's that book that Yodorowsky made of like the Dune he was going to do. And it was like this giant. He had like. Uh, and so we have to return to Dune. No, <laughs> yes, I, I, we I, do. I, he basically he storyboarded the whole movie, so it's like this giant fat book, and it's just like all these sheets of like drawings and so forth. No, that's kind of that's what that great. Reminded great. Me of. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean that that uh, the original manuscript with the copy and pasting it, it belongs. Yeah, that in, would be awesome. It's <laughs> like it, a cool as, art piece. You know what I mean? If like yeah. you're gonna do a Deleuze and Guattari art piece, that's almost like a interesting one. You know, just really quickly, just on this coop, you've seen the the chair, right? Yes, the one that you made with the cutting out of Kant or I was in an ex I was in experimental text class and we were basically supposed to do an experimental text which included the style. So I which had an essay kind of describing the art project, but the art project I took a, a computer chair and I cut out I cut up twenty-five of my sort of quote unquote favorite books, which Nietzsche and philosophy, I think the supply logic of ideology. I think one of the books was the critique of pure reason. These were all books that I had scribbled on, you know, marginalia annotated, and I sort of decoupaged the computer chair with all of these little pasted on, you know, all of these uh, mm -hmm. these little fragments, and I still have that in the garage. But that was definitely the most interesting <laughs> thing I've done with, you know, and I, I wrote about it in terms of non-philosophy and stuff. Anyway, one of the things that's interesting, just just to since it's on top of my head, you know, Deleuze was the one who also kind of had the quote-unquote power, right? Watry was the one who yeah. turned out a lot of the writing. Deleuze was more of the editing. But the interesting 
intermediary though was that Guattari was was uh, writing longhand, and it was Fanny Deleuze's wife who supposedly typed up those manuscripts for them. And so it's interesting just thinking about the one of the things we talked about earlier with this sort of unpaid labor, right, that goes in that, you know, if you cut out Fanny from the Deleuze and Guattari crowd assemblage, you kind of lose a very key component. And I think that that is just interesting to, to always have in mind when thinking about, I guess, taken for granted or taken as self, as obvious, these components that go into making those kind of collaborations possible, you know, with Cooper and I, it's microphones and <laughs> internet, Wi-Fi, you know, the digital interface. But, you know, for, for you and Antoni, it was at least for Empire, you know, it, it had to do with this manual, um, I guess there's something of an aura to it, you know, in the Walter Benjamin sense, right? That artifact. I definitely want to one of the things I, I also wanted to say, but I think we already said it, I wanted to make sure we covered this, was one of the themes that we see not only in the 20 years essay, but in Empire itself, is how a lot of the means of not only capitalism, but sort of empire, the global phenomenon, is this response to workers' demands and workers' uh, struggles and things like this. I thought that that was, maybe that's something, again, that you see elsewhere, but the thread was not lost. I mean, I think it made a, a big impact seeing this notion that then, too, we have to use the tools of, we have to also kind of adapt to that type of adaptation and use those tools against the edifice itself. Maybe one could start with the just, you know, Marx Engels idea, even in the manifesto that, and, and this is something that, you know, certainly is completely through and through of my and Tony's thinking, you know, which is that capital always provides the weapons that can be used against it, that it necessarily in its own development, you know, for right. its own interests has to provide the weapons, which doesn't mean that, I don't know, capital creates its own downfall. It's, it provides the weapons, those weapons then have to be you know, adapted and used, etc. Yeah. yeah, wielded, exactly. I mean, I remember this was a, even maybe while we were writing Empire, we were thinking of three of three different sources of this idea that you're talking about. Maybe the most explicit one is the claim in Mario Tronti's book, Workers and Capital, which is now actually finally in English. And the claim there was really around the workers' struggle, that his claim was that the struggle of the workers precedes and prefigures the developments of capital so that and part of the consequence of that one could say something like that and it could sound super depressing like no matter what we do capital profits from it it's rather i think the importance is to emphasize the power that like the the source of innovation and the power we have maybe and maybe another of the sources like well the, the two others that we were thinking of at the time were the subaltern studies group you know in, mm -hmm. in some ways recognizing that and even their way of thinking history from below, I mean, that it's not that all of the innovations of the Raj were constructed by the British colonial powers, but in fact, you have to see that the moment of innovation of history, like the construction of history really happened from the colonized. I mean, that's just as a way of seeing it in that we've only read previously, this was, you know, just a basic point of, of theirs and others at the time, you know, we've only read the history of, of the colonizers. So anyway, the third one that translates right to back to our vocabulary of this, of our discussion today was, at least it started for me just as a footnote in Deleuze's Foucault book, where he says something like, 
you know, everybody reads the notion of resistance in Foucault and assumes that it's um, that it comes after power. And he says, no, in fact, resistance is prior to power. He doesn't mean it historically, which, you know, Trump is in some ways made doing this historically. But rather, I think Deleuze means it ontologically, which is to say that resistance is the moment of innovation and creation right, of power right. really just falls back. The way Deleuze and Guattari are always saying that power falls back. It really just recuperates. Anyway, we were thinking right. all three of these things is the same as the same resonating with each other and and more or less ways of describing yeah this is where where i was starting with what you said ways of describing the fact that not only capital but other forms of domination also have within them and give us the means to topple them you know like it's not only that capital creates its own grave diggers it also creates the weapons to assassinate and then grave digger too i suppose yeah. but i like the first part which is and so anyway i think that is a, a sort of general theoretical principle that demonstrates you know that the importance i think for it is that demonstrates the history of that power so that we so the wintoni and i say for instance if you want to look at globalization in the 20th century really you need to look at internationalism you know proletarian internationalism anti-racist you know look at bandum look at look at all the other circuits of you know the proletariat was internationalist before capital was that sort of right. idea and, and so were the anti-racist struggles and so this is you know it's not like these are just victims of a genius that has been moving history to dominate them it's really that history has been moving through struggles and that so far the structures of power have been able to recuperate right and find ways to restructure to yeah. to but I think part of the, the importance of that method of reading for us is is one that to emphasize the power that exists, not being victims, but being defeated. I mean, that's true, right? But defeated is a lot different than being uh, passive, victim. vanquished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Communist history is full of defeats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe only defeats. I mean, I want to win, of course, but <laughs> but recognizing those defeats is not a doesn't have to be depressing doesn't no it's yeah. it's really it's the sort of step on which to from which to move forward yeah i think badu says something about the history of communism the events that took place in the 20th century etc they don't define the essence of communism so i think that's how well, i try to think of it, it that the essence of communism isn't necessarily compromised by the failures of its history you know if, if you want to call it that so and I like this notion because I do. I know it shows up in the in the first opening chapters of Empire about this point that resistance is prior. Because if it weren't, there would be a sense in which we're either in a Hegelian type of reactionary negation of the negation, etc. Right? It it has to be sort of an affirmation of an affirmation to put it in the Dionysian and Ariadne terms. And that discussion of the sort of I guess the what is it, the resistance coming first? I was just thinking about, you know, something from our lifetimes that really exemplifies this fairly well would be, I'm thinking back to like Napster whenever that was kind of blowing up. And that really, I mean, that exploded the music industry. It took a while, right? So eventually, you know, it's kind of a free for all for a while, but then it is recuperated. And now we have this kind of rentier subscription model and they really, yeah. you know, now the whatever streaming companies, I mean, it's extended to all digital entertainment at this point, but you can kind of see how, it's just a, a more 
aggressive extraction and elimination and flattening out of things. What one should do, or at least what one should look for, I don't know, I can't find it right here myself, is that if there are ways of struggle against the the recuperation, yeah. Becoming property of music and stuff right. like that. If there are increased weapons, let's say, here than there were. Like, because you're right that I remember, I remember the moment thinking, you know, not just with Napster, but even with just the idea that, you know, everyone I knew was violating the law just by making <laughs> cassettes of music and sharing it with each other. Right, you know, like right. Like, this was property. And it's true. And and I was sort of thinking at the time then, well, you know, like, this is great. Like, all things are just, you know, property is just going to be dissolved by these mechanisms that we have of, you know, sharing and stuff like that. And clearly, as you're saying, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later, no, they've developed these other mechanisms. But yeah, just like I said, I, that would be my my instinct in thinking about it would be to try to discover the ways that there are new weapons that are created within this right. I mean, it's just a, a method of inquiry. It's not a guarantee that that's that's right. you know, it's going to work out. But that's that's sort of my way of going on this. Seeking out I, those lines of flight. Just to yeah. an ad- anecdote for you, actually, Taylor and I met on Twitter. Believe it or not, so <laughs> there are those opportunities for there to be something you know to weaponize, to resist. Yeah. So forth. You just have to look for them. <laughs> yeah, and you got to strike, as, as, as you said, Michael. You got to hold on to to those people that that boost your power and that you recognize envelop that cause. I will say that was your weaponizing to use the term of Spinoza's definition of, uh, of love and power were both, that was beautiful. It was amazing. But I, I want to give you the last line, you know, what is your current research projects? What are you working on? Anything just to leave us with, you know, sort of what is in store in the future, whether or not you're still collaborating with Antonio Negri, you know, just anything you want to give us as a, as a parting gift. Tony and I are, are working on a project. It's of course, I mean, the way I've thought of it for these decades is it's a condition of the friendship that there be a book, you know, like like we um, have an excuse for talking to each other and me flying to wherever he is and stuff like that. Although it's not that I have any secrets or something, just trying to explain what we're working on before it's done never makes any sense. And never. I did finish a book that'll come out next year. That's a really different kind of book about the 1970s, about the revolutionary movements of the 1970s in different parts of the world, which called the subversive 70s. Okay. and trying to recognize how the political problems posed by movements in the 70s in the Americas, in Europe, in Africa. I mean, try to do as many places as I could, how they posed the political problems that we still face today. And in some ways, the movements of the 70s argument goes, are in fact more advanced. In some ways, we can recognize the seeds of the present, you know, like embryonic right. ways in which the contemporary struggles are form but more interesting sometimes is the way that they are in fact ahead of us but anyway yeah. it's it's a it was fun it was really enjoyable anything on france like post 68 because again just that's part yeah. of where a lot of the you know the, there's any connections between the struggles in italy and france etc right and and also coop mentioned that may 68 but you know reverse it in 86 that's when you and antonio formed form your friendship there's an interesting yeah. symmetry there bifo would be cool to talk to you about that era because if i'm not mistaken i read his 
I at least started his book on Guattari, and he talks about how he was in jail and someone brought him anti Oedipus to read in like <laughs> 70 or 72 or something like that. Yeah. Somewhere around uh-huh. there. There's a lot about Italy and a certain amount about France and nice. and everything else I could learn about. I just want to thank you again for coming on to, yeah. to, to visit us and sort of, you know, g- revisiting empire, but also discussing, you know, these theoretical issues that have practical implications and just sharing your anecdotes and your thoughts. It's been a joy. I will say it's been a, uh, a real pleasure. And Loved it. Uh, we're going to let you go. We're going to, we're going to hang on for just a minute to talk about okay. uh, what, we're, what we're doing next week, but Thanks again for your Great. time. Yes. And, yeah, it's a uh, pleasure. Please cut out all the boring parts. <laughs> <laughs> we, and and we'll, so. we'll we'll let you know when the episode drops. As Cooper said, it'll probably be early yeah, January. And more than uh, Great. you know, if you had okay. fun, maybe next year when your your book drops, we'd love to have you back at some point. Sure, that'd be great. Excellent. Well, you enjoy the rest of your weekend, and thanks again so much for uh, for giving us your time. Pleasure. Thanks to Michael Hart for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happier with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins.